So I spent the better part of this past week in Kansas City, Kansas. I flew into Kansas City, Missouri, drove across the state line to go to Kansas for a, bunch, for a week of meetings with United Methodist clergy and normal people in United Methodist Church, uh, and then to talk about uh, what we have hope for in the United Methodist Church. We dreamed together, we prayed together, we worshiped God together, we networked together. We met with 100 people from, 100 people from Virginia alone went to this gathering. And we met for about an hour and a half and we, we dreamed and we schemed and we used God's word as our guidepost. We used the Bible to dream big dreams for the church that we've all been called to. Now, it should come as no surprise to many of you who have been in the church for, say, more than three minutes to know that wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, there's going to be difference of opinion on a whole host of things from, like, serving coffee in church. Can you bring it into the sanctuary? Does it have to stay outside the sanctuary? Little things like that, but all the way down to the nitty-gritty The details of what we are going to agree to hold dear. What are we going to agree to believe as a denomination? What does God's word reveal to us that we can all agree on? There is a reason that the Wesleyan quadrilateral, that's scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. There's a reason that it begins with scripture. This is not a square with equal lines drawn out with four other squares. This is a a quadrilateral with Scripture taking up the most space in there. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, and believe it or not, the quadrilateral was the method to part of his madness. When we begin to look at the Word of God revealed to creation, we begin to examine the Bible They are words that were written generations ago, but when we open this book and we look at the texts in 2019 and 2020 and 2032, every time we open this book, we earnestly believe that God's Spirit will breathe new life into these words. So Jeremiah 32, which might have made absolutely no sense and still might, might not make any sense, God is breathing new life into those words so that when we read it, generations removed from the original events, we too are brought into God's story. So I'm going to show you some things from the trip so you can know that I went there and I actually attended the conference and didn't just sit playing golf or whatever people do on conferences. So this is a stained glass window. It's at the front of the Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, Kansas. The Church of the Resurrection is the biggest United Methodist Church in the world. They have 22,000 members, multiple campuses throughout Kansas City, and their sanctuary seats 2,500 people. In worship, they have a 100-piece choir, an orchestra, an organ, and a full band just like ours. And this stained glass window is at the front of the sanctuary. And to give you some perspective on just how big this thing is, Jesus' head is five feet tall. Jesus' face on this image looks white, and then it gets darker as you move from the top left of his head down to the bottom. The artist who made the stained glass window included every single color in the stained glass. So yes, there's white and there's brown, but there's also purple and green and red and orange. And so as we move and we look at Christ, we're not just looking at Jesus with our western white eyes, but we are seeing Christ as Christ sees the world. 
And so on the left side of the image, there is uh, a garden. Well, there's three gardens, really. Uh, we're going to talk about the three gardens. So this is where in your Bibles you're going to want to look at Genesis 1, because on the left side of the glass, that's where our story begins. We are a story that began in a garden. Genesis tells us, Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, the beasts of the sea, the air, the ground, and then God created humanity and God placed us into a garden. And it was in a garden that we, humanity, we began to flourish. And that's what's dictated on that left side of the image. Yes, sin entered the world in the garden, but as we move towards the center where Christ is, if you look closely enough, and we'll make this available uh, online so you can all look at it, you will see familiar faces from the Sunday school stories that we remember reading about in third grade. You'll see the faces you remember making crafts about when you were a little kid. And now we also, as adults, we begin to examine these scriptural readings with tradition our own experiences, and the way that we are able to reason the world. So kids, if you're in the room and you're not asleep yet, I want you to remember one thing, and after this you can stop listening, and I'll be happy. I beg of you, do not stop reading these stories. These stories are not just the church's stories, they are your story. So don't let this book sit on the shelf like so many of us let happen and gain dust. Wear out the pages. Write in the book. Write notes. Write question marks. Ask one another. And if your parents don't know the answer, they can ask me. And guess what? I'll give them a three-hour response so they'll want to do their homework on their own instead. We cannot understand what it means to be the body of Christ, the church, without these words. The Hebrew Bible, highlighted by our reading from the Jeremiah prophet, the prophet Jeremiah this morning, let's just be nice and say that it's confusing, which is why people like me don't like to preach from it. A lot of the stories lack clarity or just simple application of 2019 and beyond. And yet, like we told the kids earlier, God is breathing life into these stories The story of the prophet Jeremiah, well, that happened at a particular place in a particular time with a particular people. Like I told the kids, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonian army, and the prophet was was recording these words from prison. He had told the king that hope wasn't lost, that this would not be the end of us. And, well, the king saw what was right in front of him. So what was Jeremiah? Was he a spy? How did he know these things? So Jeremiah was thrown in prison. The Babylonians were going to destroy Israel and take, the, uh, take Israel with them. They were going to exile, and that's what ended up happening. But Jeremiah had a vision from the Lord, and Jeremiah chose to buy land when most would say he was crazy. And just like now, buying property is a complicated, uh, messy business, and being besieged by Babylon, it was a terrible idea to do this. Jeremiah was about to lose what he had just purchased. But hope wasn't lost, and yet the Lord came to Jeremiah and told him this. Hope, you see, in the Bible prevails time and time again when darkness seems to be closing in. 
Beyond what we view as antiquated customs and laws and rules that just don't apply to us in 2019, this book shows us how God's chosen people navigated life together and life apart during a time when we don't quite understand their geopolitical structure. So that's the Old Testament. And as we move to the center, we've got Jesus with his arms out saying, come to me, inviting us to step into the grace which is already ours for the taking. We just have to step forward. And then as we move to the right, you will see the saints of the church, saints of the past, those who have gone before us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is in there somewhere. Uh, and again, I'll make this available so you all can, can see. These are the people who have influenced the church, the martyrs, those who have gone before us to live out this calling of hope that God has placed on our, in our lives. And as you make all the way back to the other side, that is the garden in Revelation. So everyone, turn in your Bibles to the other end, Revelation, the last chapter. In there we find the lion and the lamb laying side by side. Sin is no more. Pain, injustice, inequality, all of the things that we do to other people is no more. God's perfect creation, what God had intended back in the very first garden, is now a reality. And the Lord Jesus is now reigning on high, and all of us, all of creation, are bowing on bended knee, giving praise to God. The greatest commandment given by Christ is fully realized. All of creation loves God, and somehow, in the end, we figured out how we would love one another. This book is confusing. I've been reading this book since I got my third grade Bible with the fake bonded leather and the uh, gold around the side. Uh, Jesus' words were in red letters because my church was nice and upgraded us. I've studied this book in the basement of a seminary in foreign countries on mission trips with friends and strangers around my own dining room table for more hours than I care to tell you. And I have one thing to pass on to you. I have no idea. What is in this book? I haven't figured it all out. Those of you who have been doing church for any amount of time probably feel the same way. Just about the time we think we have the Bible figured out, God's Spirit breathes new life into the words and throws our equilibrium off, and we have to begin the process again. Rob Bell, he's a a pastor, and he wrote uh, in his book, What is the Bible?, that this book is a book of politics, economics, common stories, and inside jokes. And often, we are the ones on the outside, not knowing what they mean. Christians of all stripes, Catholics, Protestants, us Methodists, the Baptists, and even those kooky Presbyterians, we all take God's word seriously. Christians across the theological spectrum take this book seriously. And still, whenever you sit down with three people to read it, and then you discuss it, you're probably going to walk away with six to 15 different interpretations of what's going on. It's just the nature of this book and how it speaks to each of us. The problem, though, is that there are times, not saying all of us do it, I know I do, some of us, will read into the text things that are not there. The problem is, when we do that, we make this book more 
about us and less about the hope that God has given to creation. One of my favorite theologians, his name's Karl Barth, uh, he famously said, take your Bible and your newspaper and read them both. Kids' newspapers are on these things that used to get delivered. You can read them on your iPads now. But what Karl Barth said at the end of this, he said, interpret your newspaper from your Bible. Everything necessary for salvation, for all of creation, is found in the Bible. Salvation for us and all of humanity. And yet, on the face value, we have confusion, antiquated stories. Some stories are so grotesque that we don't like to read them in church. And yet, there's hope in this book. We don't have to try to fit the words of this book into the agenda of our own congregation or into our own personal politic. Jesus' teachings, while confusing at times, clearly outline what the garden in Revelation will look like and how we will get there. The Great Commission. It's given to us. Go and make disciples. That is crystal clear. Jesus told a story to his disciples, parables. They were earthly examples of heavenly truths. And he told the story about this guy, this rich guy, who we never know his name, and Lazarus. Lazarus was poor and sat outside the rich man's home, and the rich man would pass by him time and time again. And then for some reason, both Lazarus and the rich man die at the same time. Lazarus finds himself with Abraham and with God. And the rich man finds himself on the outside of what had been promised to us. The division between the rich and poor in the church of Jesus Christ, in that garden at the end of Revelation, the division between the rich and poor is no more. The rich man has to pass, chose to pass by Lazarus throughout his day-to-day earthly existence, never paying him any attention. And yet the rich man's heart breaks when in the end he finds, he finds out it was Lazarus all along who could help him see what God had created for us. So Jeremiah did not lose hope. Didn't lose hope. We don't have to give up because God will not give up on us. Israel had, a hope, had hope when it all had seemed lost. And God promised them prosperity over those who would oppress them. And I told you there were three gardens, and you're like, Tear, well, yours, I only see two. You've only talked about two. You can flip now towards the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus there in the middle with his arms stretched out, inviting us to step into the powerful hope of God. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus died in a garden, that he was buried in a garden, and that the resurrection was revealed to Mary in a garden. The hope of God. The hope that was there at the beginning of creation and the hope that will be there at the end of creation was present there in the garden when Jesus overcame the power of the grave. Friends, the Bible is a book of hope. And because it's a book of hope, we therefore are a people of hope. We are a community of hope. This book is not meant to be a stumbling block towards faith with the complexities of ancient cultures that we don't understand most of the time. And frankly, none of us will probably study in depth. This book of hope builds upon 
builds for the body of Christ and all of creation. It builds us up. It's not meant to tear people down. This is not a book. Kids, listen again. Wake up. This book is not a weapon to be used against other people. Weapons aren't hopeful. Weapons hurt people. This is meant to give hope to the world. It's not used to convince someone to get right with the Lord. It's not used to prove a talking point on your political sheet or in a debate. This book gives all of us life. This book is an invitation to earnestly believe that when everything seems lost, that there is hope. It gives us hope that when the city gates are surrounded and the traditions of our past make absolutely no sense and what we are experiencing and what we are reasoning leave us to believe that the darkness is closing in. This book gives us hope. Because in it, we have revealed to us and to the generations to come the truth of God's unwavering love for us manifested to the fullest in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our third graders who are here and who I know will listen to this podcast uh, later in the week who have received their Bibles, don't let this book collect dust in times of darkness. Let this book be light Because in it, we find the ultimate story of God's redemptive promise for us. So for us, adults, as we give these books to our children, let us recommit ourselves to it. Let us commit right now to being a community of people who take seriously Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh. Let Christ be the lens that we use to read this book. We have been blessed to be a blessing to the rest of our community because we have been blessed by the written word of God, which has been revealed to us by Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now we're going to.